Turn with me, please, brothers and sisters, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Today, I'm going to do something slightly unorthodox for me. Uh, Not that it is, technically speaking, unorthodox, but it's certainly different than what I ordinarily do. We in New Plymouth are working our way through the book of Nehemiah, uh, but we took a break from that uh, two weekends ago because for the first time since our inception as a church plant, we formally moved towards two formal worship services. And so we took the opportunity on that particular day uh, to spend both services uh, considering the blessings of corporate worship. Why, uh, as I'll make mention of in the sermon, why we are bucking the trend, so to speak, uh, of so many churches and now uh, for so many of them, especially over in New Plymouth, are only holding one church service uh, and we are moving towards holding two church services. <laughs> why do we do this in our churches, in the Reformed churches and church planting? But why also in particular, in this current time and in our particular ecumenical environment, do we buck that trend? Why do we do this? Why do we crave more rather than less? And so we're thinking today, as we did two weeks ago in New Plymouth, about the blessings of corporate worship. And so Hebrews chapter 10 is the springboard for what we're going to be looking at. Uh, I normally preach my way through a passage. I make no apologies today for a slightly different uh, nature of the worship, uh, the nature of the preaching. But I'm going to be reading this morning from verse 19 to verse 25 as we consider the truth of this. This is in the context of uh, the author to the Hebrews presenting the nature of worship itself. It is in the metaphor of a temple. It has reference, given he's speaking to Christian Jews, uh, of Old Testament worship and what actually occurs within a New Testament worship setting. So that's very telling. We're particularly going to be springing out of verse 24 and 25, as we will again this afternoon, uh, and we will begin reading at verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, for these reasons, because of this truth, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, or he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another uh, up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the question that we're really asking of this passage, because God commands his people in this passage to gather and all the more, to not give up doing so, it is a command, and so we command certainly, uh, we respond as an act of obedience. But the question which we're really asking of this passage and of the scriptures in general, and I'll be referring to a lot of the scriptures this morning and this afternoon, but the question is why? Why does God command us to gather Why does he give corporate worship to his people and celebrate it and impress it upon us with such weight? Why does he do that? That's what we're going to attempt to answer today. One of the major overarching reasons I would put it to you that the 
The world in its sinfulness is not currently already on its knees before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is because in reality, man, especially since the fall, has had an extremely small view of God. Very small view of God. In our sinful state, we have become painfully deficient in our knowledge of God. We've become blind to His power, to His holiness, to His breathtaking beauty. Our God is perfection in every way, we're told. He stands supreme over all that He has created. Even the most powerful angels, well, they celebrate an abject wonder. His name, His character, His works, because He is worthy. But the question then is, brothers and sisters, when you became converted, did you all of a sudden, in that instant, become awestruck by who exactly Christ restored you to? Were you in wonder upon wonders when you beheld for the first time the awesomeness of your God? Perhaps for some of you that was true. And for a time, nothing earthly could pull you away from the meditations of the graces and the wonders of who it is you now were able to worship. Maybe that was true at your conversion. But then again, there's another question. How long did that last? That enthusiasm and that zeal and that passion for your God. When we're driven to consider the failings of the church, which sadly we often are driven to consider them because uh, often they end up being very public when the church fails. Well, when we do that, we'll often consider her low level of sanctification. How unlike Christ she actually is. And yet in our tears, as we consider this, even as we sung earlier and we cry out, How long, O Lord? We look particularly to the open sins that she commits. She does many. And our heart breaks. But at root, the issue we face is the same as the church Christ writes to in Revelation 2. You've abandoned your first love. What staggering words to hear from your bridegroom. This is Christ, the bridegroom of the church. And he's speaking to a church in Revelation 2. You've lost your first love. The one who died explicitly to restore that love. Same problem, of course, is presented in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. Christ speaks of a king in that parable, representing, of course, God himself, who calls his people to gather to a feast that he lays for them. And what's the response? You remember it. It's a famous parable. They're too busy. They have better things to do. They appreciate the invite, but maybe later. Maybe later. I need some me time. I'm a bit tired. I had a busy week and I've got other things on my mind. I have a prior engagement, a birthday party, a meeting some work to finish before Monday. Congregation, the battle for our affections is not just the battle of our time. It is, in fact, the battle of mankind since the fall. 
John MacArthur put it this way, the source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives relate to two things. Either they're not worshipping God six days a week with their life, or they're not worshipping one day a week with the assembly of the saints. He said, we need both. And I wholeheartedly agree. And more importantly, John MacArthur here is simply echoing God himself. There's something seriously, seriously wrong with the people of God that has little interest in meeting their Savior and Lord when he calls. There's something seriously wrong with that. And I'm not just talking about current times. This has been a battle of generations, a loss of appetite for God even among church people. Why do you think that, broadly speaking, in terms of ecumenism and the nature of the church, churches are shutting up shop in the afternoon? I don't know what it's like here in Hastings, but certainly over in New Plymouth, it is devastating that every couple of weeks you seem to see another article in a newspaper of some church that is being sold to make some nice hand lotion thing, and they they advertise it on the radio and in the newspaper as, as some amazing new business opportunity. And so often their advertising is blasphemous. They call their new businesses havens. You desperately need peace, come to the new pub. We're in the old church. Why is there such a lack of appetite for the things of God? Nobody can say they love Christ and yet despise his bride. Our Lord Jesus will have words with such people when he returns. That's how weighty it is. As I mentioned two weeks ago in God's gracious providence in New Plymouth, we were able to start a second worship service. And I'd like to suggest to you young people in particular, this is a battle of your time. It's a battle of your time. The generations above you have been fighting this battle for a long time and losing. Do you love the Lord? Do you crave his presence? It's very, very important. There's an ongoing trend, of course, to go in the opposite direction. And so many people think that uh, perhaps when they look at the church, one, one service a Sunday is a bare minimum. They go, well, God commands us together, so we at least go once a Sunday. That's a bare minimum. Can't do less than that. But in fact, you're sadly mistaken. Many Christians today, and I don't know about this church, but many Christians today, and even some ministers, tend to operate on the basis that church itself is optional. And so they think they've done pretty well if they go once a month or at Christmas time. God is so satisfying to me, so incredibly satisfying, that I just need a single service once a year, and that sets me up for the whole other 364 days. That's how much I appreciate my God. Dip my toe in that well once, last for a year. That's actually an incredibly common attitude among believers these days. What do you think that testifies to the world? About the value of God. Your appetite as Christians testifies about the value of God himself. And we celebrate Christ's sacrifice. We celebrate Christ's sacrifice. 
But why? Because biblically, his sacrifice and his death on the cross restores us to God. And if we're not that interested in God, then what does that suggest about the value of Christ's sacrifice? These are very, very important questions. Why do so many of our forefathers traipse for hours every week, literally sometimes four or five hours a week, with their children to get to a corporate gathering of God's people because there were no churches in their own area? Why did they do that consistently for so long? Why have so many ministers in the past been willing to die and be imprisoned in order to hold worship for their people? It's happened all over the world. Speak to missionaries in places like China and Afghanistan and South Africa. And again, brothers and sisters, I'm not just talking about COVID restrictions. Why is there such an immense value placed on corporate worship among the people of God historically in times of trouble? Gathering all the more, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. In order to answer these questions, we're going to be looking at four areas of immense blessing that God has given us. Immense blessing. We do this, of course, in an attempt to take a step deeper into God's gracious provision. And I tell you what, brothers and sisters, this, as I was preparing it a couple of weeks ago and even reviewing it for today, is something that is getting me increasingly excited and thankful to our God. I'm only going to deal with two of these four things, so I don't get too, too uh, nervous about the time. Uh, two of these four things this morning, and we're going to pick up the other two this afternoon, so you're going to need to return, and I hear from the booking system that there are always easily 40 seats available for booking, so I expect this to be packed and book and come. If you're sitting at home, don't stay at home. First major reason we value corporate worship is this. Corporate worship is a celebration of God's already completed work and character. Corporate worship is a celebration of God's already completed work and character. This, of course, began in creation. God had made man, and he made all things, and he sat back, and what did he do? He declared it good. And on the seventh day, he rested, and he made it holy. In doing so, he established a pattern for all creation that they would be free from earthly labor. Not that labor before the fall was wrong, but that even when labor was not difficult and hard because of sin, God wanted his people to recognize that they wanted to spend time with him, that he wanted to spend time with them. The intimate relationship experienced with their God. And yet, as you know, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve showed such a disinterest in the blessing of such a communion. And because of that disinterest, a lack of the value that they placed in it, ultimately, they fell into sin. And as a result, they were cast out of that communion and expelled from the Garden of Eden. A very significant symbol there. They weren't allowed back in because an angel guarded the gate. The presence of God was denied them. Why? Because he is holy and they in their sin were not holy. And we need to consider then the very existence now of corporate worship. The ver this very entity of corporate worship, both in the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple, but also now in the New Testament, church gatherings that we experience these things are a very powerful and practical reminder and experience of God's grace. 
They're a testimony of His grace. Because not only are we reminded of certain blessings and the various elements of corporate worship, but the very existence of it, the very existence of it testifies to the fact that even now we're able to be welcomed back into His presence. Have you ever considered that? The very existence of a church testifies to God's faithfulness in His work. For God's people no longer is He the source of trouble. Because He did become the source of trouble, didn't He? It's His wrath that is the problem that mankind faces in their sin. But for God's people who are welcomed once more into His presence, we recognize that He's no longer the source of trouble for us in His righteous wrath and in His indignation, but He has become once more the place of our rest. Psalm 27 verse 5, For in the time of trouble, I don't run away from God. He shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. In corporate worship, brothers and sisters, we meet once more with God triune. We meet with him. An impossibility since the fall. And only possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We meet with our God. We come, we're told, joyfully into His presence with thanksgiving. Psalm 95 verse 2. We sing praises to Him in the midst of the assembly that He Himself has gathered before His face. This is what Hebrews 2.12 says. In fact, interestingly, Titus 1 verse 3 teaches us that God actually speaks to His people through preaching. So when the preacher comes and speaks to you, This is not just Reverend Flynn or Reverend Closterman or anyone else who has some words to say, and I guess we need to concentrate. Christ speaks to you through his mouthpiece. You meet with him and hear from him. On top of this, the very existence of a gathered church in time and space testifies to God's faithfulness to His promise to redeem for Himself a people. He made these promises, did He not? And the physical reality of what is going on even here as we gather is that we testify to a God who is faithful to keep those promises. (laughs) Have you thought about that before? We are able to return to Eden in the greatest sense of what the Scriptures mean, that even here we are in His presence once more and not consumed. We're not cast out any longer. We're welcomed back in. The greatest ache of mankind since the fall, which is separation from our Creator, has overcome through His grace. And He, we're told in Psalm 149, 14, or 4, He delights in us. He delights in us. The very reality of us being seated, well, you being seated here this morning, I'm standing, I guess. The very reality of us being seated here this morning testifies that God's promises are coming true. And it testifies that God's work is effectual. He's able to do what He has promised. 
The very existence of the assembly of the upright and the congregation shows that God saves sinners. How do you know? Look. How else do you know? Look over there. These are sinners who are saved through the blood of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. <laughs> Look, world. Look. When you look around you in the gathering of the saints, the only reason, the only reason, there are people sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you is because Christ died to draw them back to himself. No other work was sufficient to do that. And because he did the work, even now you are here. You are here. And in this way, too, as we gather together, we testify physically to the spiritual reality that the blood of our Lord was sufficient. Done is the work that saves. I spoke about the second half of Ephesians 5 about marriage. We must never forget the truth, the amazing truth, which is spoken about in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Christ so loved the church that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Christ loves you. And his expression of love and his ongoing work is done even through this. This is not just done in the future glory congregation, it's done each week as he meets with us to wash us in the water of the word by the Spirit, it's done as he calls us and leads us before the throne of his Father as one restored people. And I tell you what, all the angels in heaven celebrate his most holy name alongside us. The corporate gathering of God's people is not ho-hum. It is not ordinary. It's by definition extraordinary. It is supernatural. The very heavens shake with the praises of the heavenly choirs and the very stones cry out as all of creation, from the angels to the ants, celebrate the grace of God with us in worship. That's what happens in reality. Do you see that? That's the first reason. The second reason is this. second reason is this. Corporate worship is a public declaration of faith in realities not yet experienced in full. Corporate worship is a public declaration of faith in realities not yet experienced in full. There's a very real sense in which we struggle to experience the glory and wonder that we've just talked about, don't we? And it's all well and good for the minister to stand up and to tell you, this is what the Bible teaches is actually happening here, but we sit here and we think, ah, I don't feel it. I don't see it. We are still, after all, partially blinded by our sin. The Spirit still has a lot of work to do on our hearts and in our spiritual eyes and ears. We're tired. We're distracted. We prefer, to be honest, our couch and a coffee to the pew, don't we? But in this way, then, our response to God's call to worship is one of faith. It's one of faith. And it's actually an expression explicitly of our faith in Christ. 
Because if he, did, if he died to restore such rich and amazing wonders for us that we've just explored, at least briefly, do we trust him? Do we trust him when he tells us what is actually happening in reality? Despite what we feel. He calls us, Psalm 25 verse 2, to come before his presence with thanksgiving, to shout joyfully to him, with psalms, we are in Psalm 100 verse 4, to enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, to be thankful to him, to bless his name. Why? Why are we called to do that? Because despite our own faithlessness, we come knowing those weaknesses, do we not? We drive to church and we've just had an argument with our spouse. We're frustrated at the kids because they left their shoes at home. What are we going to say to people when they look sideways at us? We're tired because we stayed up too late watching the rugby last night and we knew we shouldn't have done it, but ah, oh well. Now we're here at church and we're just not feeling it. Isn't, isn't that where we're normally at when we come to church? It's real life. And yet, despite all the hardships and the pains in our life, despite the forgetfulness of the joys of what is supposed to be occurring here, we come knowing those weaknesses and we come to be reminded by our God of what we're so often prone to forget. That the victory is His. That Christ has conquered sin and death. That even now, Ephesians 2, 6, we are raised up together with him and made to sit together, even now, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Even here, in faith, as we gather, we declare that we have been united once more to God and to each other in the likeness of Christ's death to sin. And we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that Paul says in Romans 6, that, that there is a death to the old man, that it has been crucified with him, that the body of sin has been done away with. We are no longer slaves to sin. We testify in faith to that reality, despite our current failings. We partake in the communion of the saints together as one body of saved and purified sinners of the Lord's Supper testifying even in that sacrament of the atoning work of the Lord on our behalf. It's a magnificent celebration. <laughs> you know, the Lord's Supper, we don't always feel the joy of such a feast, do we? We kind of go through the motions, we sit where we're called to sit, we eat what we're called to eat, we drink a little swig, and then, cool, we're off. Let's grab a coffee. It was good that we did it. We don't always feel the joy of such a feast. We don't always feel so bound together in love. We participate in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again as promised because our Lord knows that, that we are forgetful. We're prone to become distracted. And so he gives us these things to remind us. In every activity of corporate worship, we testify together to a love we have for God and for each other because God loved us first. And yet we also recognize that although we've received this love, we don't yet experience it in full. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We have our minds and our hearts stretched. We need to have our minds and our hearts stretched to comprehend it more. 
to have our eyes lifted once again, despite all our distraction, to Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And our God, brothers and sisters, is so gracious, so incredibly gracious, that he restores our souls. And he affirms our faith. And he gives us a taste of that future glory which the Christian heart craves. For is it not the worship that we do even now, isn't that worship already modeled on the heavenly worship of the angels that God himself has established? Isn't that what we see so often in Revelation? All the angels and the peoples of every nation singing out his praises and reminding each other of his perfections and his great works and building each other up in the knowledge of their God. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 tells us that even in worship, we come to the city of the living God. We come in worship to the heavenly Jerusalem to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. <laughs> How magnificent is our experience right now? How magnificent is it? And yet you say, well, I just don't see it. Don't feel it. Congregation, our God has said it. And it must be true. It must be true. Remember Elisha in 2 Kings 6.17. His servant was so discouraged and disheartened, wasn't he? He was so discouraged. And, he, and Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant so that he would see reality. And when God answers Elisha's prayer, what is his servant able to see? A host of angels standing around the city, protecting, strengthening, standing for the people of God. Brothers and sisters, this is our present reality. This is the truth of what happens here, despite what you feel. And we need to aspire not only to experience this, but to believe it. <laughs> to believe it. We are transported into God's very throne room in worship. And our experience of it is fleeting. We see it as though through a veil darkly, but that's why we come in faith. And we come craving the even fuller expression of peace and joy and intimacy that will only be ours when our Lord returns. But until then, until then, our God has given us each other. Each other to remind one another of what is the truth, to remind one another of the joys, to remind one another that we are restored to him through Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. And this here is the good news of the gospel physically expressed in time and space. You are a light. Be a light. What a joy to be gathered here together with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we get to do it again this afternoon. So come, come. Two more magnificent truths of the Scriptures regarding our present reality. I'm going to have to draw a line there, and we'll deal with the other two points this afternoon. But congregation, recognize your God loves you in Christ. He loves you in Christ. Let's come before Him in thankfulness. Let's pray.